Hi, I'm Calvin Pugh, and this is HIV Connect, a podcast from the International Association of Providers of AIDS Care, or IAPAC, that brings into focus what living with HIV looks like today. In each episode, I connect with clinicians, experts, and community leaders in conversations about clinical and psychosocial management issues, such as aging, stigma, and sexual health topics that matter to people living with HIV. My guests today are Britt Walsh, who is a white, non-binary, trans, and queer person who works in retention and engagement of care for people living with HIV. Britt has worked with their team at Whitman Walker Health to support over 2,000 individuals from accessing medically necessary surgical care. As Director of Gender Affirming Care at WWH and as a licensed clinical and community practice social worker, Britt ensures that quality patient-centered care is delivered and institutions are held accountable. Britt also provides a variety of training and consulting services outside of their role at WWH. And Tori Cooper, who is a health and equity advocate, community organizer, educator, author, and leader in the transgender and HIV communities. She leads with more than 30 years of experience at all levels of HIV service, from volunteer roles to her service as executive director and founder of Advocates for Better Care Atlanta, LLC, an organization dedicated to the education and empowerment of marginalized people across the country. She now serves as the Human Rights Campaign's Director of Community Engagement for the Transgender Justice Initiative. In this role, her focus includes economic empowerment, capacity building programs, public safety, and expanded public education campaigns. Thank you both for joining me. So gender-affirming care has certainly come to the forefront in both practice and policy in recent years. Gender-affirming care is a lifeline to those in the transgender and gender non-conforming communities. But depending on where individuals live in the United States, it can be impossible or at least very challenging to access. So I'd like to start with something easy, considering that the complexity of that. So what are your pronouns, if you don't mind sharing, and why are pronouns so important? Well, thank you for having us. Uh, I will first say my pronouns are she, her, and hers. It's so important to have this conversation because pronouns tell a little bit about who you are. They tell a little bit about your journey, and they tell a little bit about where you're going. Certainly, they are not always the end of the destination, but they help folks to know where you are in that particular moment. Yeah, thanks for that, Tori. I'm Britt. I use they and he pronouns. And similar to what Tori shared, I feel like pronouns are important because they invite people to know something about you, um, know how to refer to you, know how to respect you. It doesn't have to be an indication of like a gender or an identity, but it's like, this is a thing that I'm willing to share about myself, that I care enough about this relationship to ask you to refer to me in this way. I feel like it's an extension or an invitation to know someone and to respect someone. I really love that. So could you share with me how you defined gender affirming care? Wow. Gender affirming care to me, and this question comes up a lot doing direct service work of like, well, what counts and what doesn't? To me, it's it's truly the most simple thing of person-centered approach to health and wellness. So what does this person in front of me need to feel seen, to feel cared for, to access their medical goals related to their gender? Um, And that can range from medical interventions to social interventions to simply like community interventions of seeing one another, respecting names and pronouns, legal interventions, 
Um, but to me personally, it's leaving space to see a person in front of me for who they are, what they choose to share with me, what they'd like us to work together towards. So thank you, Britt, for bringing into community and all the aspects that don't involve medical intervention or don't involve a doctor. I think all of those were wonderful ways to to describe uh, gender-affirming care. And then I would also ask from a medical standpoint, I really think of intersectionality and gender-affirming care is addressing all the different parts of myself. I'm a Black trans woman, and I happen to be a woman of a certain age. I'm in my mid-50s. And so gender-affirming care for someone like me would include gyno care, but it would also, I'm, I was born with the prostate, so it also includes prostate care. And it's being able to have all of those things fully addressed, plus all of those different societal things that you just mentioned, Brett. I think those are things that really are gender-affirming care. And each individual has a different set of uh, care needs, and really all of them should be addressed in different ways. I think that's an interesting point that you made there, Tori. Has the definition or what it's meant to you personally changed over the years? Without question, in part because I have continued to age, thank goodness. Um, So my gender-affirming care has aged as well, has also, to make a play on words, has transitioned over time, you know, uh, and so that's a part of it. But then also there's been advances in what's available. When I first started transitioning, my medical transition in 1993, there were things that weren't available to me then, and I had what was considered good insurance. It was more difficult to have conversations that I needed with my provider because I didn't even have the words to describe the journey that I was entering. And so things have certainly grown and progressed and advanced in in the now 30 years since then in wonderful ways. There are far more options. I think one of the things, even when folks don't have the words to say options, I think for many of us, what we're looking for is additional options. People who are living with HIV want more options than one particular medicine or one particular provider. And for trans and non-binary folks, we want to have options as well. I think that is a point that's been made across several of our recordings is that the power of choice is so important for every person but it's really powerful for people living with HIV, considering that there were times that options were so limited and how we, you know, received care and how we went about the, about, you know, this process of from diagnosis to, you know, viral suppression and beyond to quality of life. There's that real key element of the power of choice. So what does gender affirming care have to do with HIV? So I'll, I'll speak from the micro and the macro. As a member of the trans femme community, we know that our community is impacted by HIV with incredibly high rates, particularly for those of us who live in the South and even more particularly for Black and Brown trans women. And then even more specifically, Black trans women, where there are places across the country where our rates for HIV are very similar and possibly even surpass that of Black MSM or Black gay men or Black same-gender-loving men. And so HIV is a real issue. So if we're going to talk about folks who are aging 
as bodies do, as people do, we have to be able to talk about what gender affirming care, all of those things that Britt mentioned and, and some of the things that we brought into the conversation earlier, but then also talk about what HIV care looks like there, making sure that, that we have as little drug and drug interactions as are possible, and also making sure that people are getting the best possible care with whatever diagnosis they have. I don't know that there's much to add, but acknowledging just what Tori said I think earlier of like, there are choices, right? Like people should have choices. There are choices now about HIV regimens. There are choices about how to affirm one's gender medically or not. Um, and I think when we talk about both gender affirmation or trans folks and gender expansive people or people living with HIV, we have to call in just like Tori did some of the social determinants of health at play trans people are more than our risk for HIV, right? And yet we can't ignore some of the ways that as Tori named, intersecting identities make parts of our community more vulnerable to HIV. And so I think you can't talk about gender affirmation without a status-neutral HIV approach. You have to bring HIV into primary care for all folks of all gender, but particularly when you're working with trans folks too. We need medical providers who are looking out for us and know what our needs are and where we might have systemic barriers in place to taking care of ourselves. So what are some of the clinical considerations for providing gender-affirming HIV care? Yeah. Um, I moved through the world as a white trans person, by the way, and I am HIV negative. I'm also a licensed clinical social worker. I provide therapy and I work in a medical setting. So I know that our clinicians are often thinking about, right, like, is it a good time to do X, Y, or Z? Or like, is this person's overall health in line with X, Y, or Z? We know that HIV prevention and care, like immediately getting someone on PrEP or starting someone on ARVs as soon as they have a positive diagnosis, have better health health outcomes. And clinically, believing someone that they're trans and someone who comes into you and says, I need gender-affirming hormone therapy, using an informed consent model, just trusting a person to know what they need for themselves, like that is also a recommendation. So I'm not a medical provider, but I think like listening to your clients will always be the first thing. Um, trusting a person to know what they need for their body, sharing information if you're if you are in an educator or medical provider or mental health provider role, really making sure that you have the up-to-date information and best practices that you're not being a barrier to the folks you're serving or the folks who are trusting you with their medical care so that you don't stall, right? There's no reason to make someone go through hoops to start hormone therapy, and there's absolutely no reason to stall on PrEP or ARVs. Excellent. And I would also add, so I work with an amazing group of Black women, cis and trans, um, and non-binary uh, folks on the feminine spectrum. And for about a year and a half, we've been working on this project called Risk to Reasons, uh, where we help people to reframe taking away the word risk and understanding their reasons for HIV prevention. Because when we think of risk, we think about danger. And so if you're a person who falls somewhere on this trans spectrum or non-binary spectrum, many of us don't see ourselves being at risk for HIV. That's quite often the case. Either we're not educated or we simply just don't see um, ourselves at risk because of who we're having sex with or, and all of those other things. And so I think for many of us, we have to retrain ourselves to really think about reasons for HIV prevention rather than risk. Again, risk implies danger. Reasons provides what for many of us, are reasons for providing sexual awareness and sexual education and 
prophylaxis, perhaps, or um, prep interventions. Our reasons could be different because they involve us and they give the control back to us rather than to someone else who determined that we fall in a certain risk category. And so then if you happen to be a person living with HIV, it's also important to understand how powerful treatment can be and how science and people have been proving now for generations. HIV has been around for 40 years in the U.S. That people have been proven for generations. If you take your medicine and get to and maintain an undetectable viral load, you can't pass HIV along to your sexual partners. But there's a bit of a learning curve that still has to take place. And we have to believe in the medicine, but also believe in the systems that are providing the medicine as well. And for a lot of us, who are considered multiply marginalized, that takes some getting used to, to actually trust systems that have been traditionally anti-trans, anti-Black, anti-Brown, anti-non-English, and so on. I think that's really interesting to think about how far we've come, but how much further we have left to go. Yes. I, I don't think any of us attend a conference or a workshop or another Zoom meeting and don't, uh, I know that I walk away so often going, we are so far from where we need to go. Absolutely. And I think with some of the attacks on the trans and the gender nonconforming community in the recent years, that has to weigh as a significant barrier for people, considering all the barriers that people who are multiply marginalized already experienced. Are there any barriers that, that stand out to you that maybe we don't get enough light as a person who's very engaged in community work, I hear people who are in need or who could really benefit from an HIV test saying, well, I don't want to go to this place that has AIDS on the front door. And that can be stigmatizing for a lot of people. So not to do a plug, but uh, through my work at the HRC and through our HIV health equity program, one of the things that we realized is that so many folks in our community, because they don't want to be stigmatized simply getting a test for HIV, we created an at-home HIV testing program. We can ship anybody two or more tests for HIV that they can do at their home. And then they have a way to confidentially follow up with either a prep provider or to get linked to care. And we're noticing people are really, really responding to that because they don't have to deal with being misgendered. They don't have to deal with invasive questions about who they had sex with last night or who they had sex with six months ago and all the folks in between. And so what I'm realizing or what many folks are realizing is that we have to bring all of the tools and the resources that have worked traditionally for white cisgender men to our community because our community deserves some equitable treatment when it comes to prevention, whether that's prevention for positives or prevention for folks who are negative. Totally. Bringing the resources to the communities. I love the work that you're doing, Tori. When I think of barriers, I work out of Washington, D.C., which happens to be our nation's capital. So one might make some assumptions about access to healthcare here. We have very high insured rates, meaning that most of the folks who live in Washington, D.C. qualify or are eligible for some kind of public benefit or commercial insurance. And yet, um, I find that we still have really big gaps in provider knowledge or comfort, um, which those are maybe nice ways to put it in terms of supporting trans patients, you know, starting someone on hormones or starting someone on PrEP or ARVs. I really believe that gender-affirming hormone management is a primary care 
medical concern. You don't need to be a specialist to start someone on hormones or to start someone on ARVs. And yet there are huge gaps in being able to find a primary care provider office who is comfortable or, you know, humble enough to say, I'm not really knowledgeable. I'll do a consult and start you off. You know, I can look up a guideline and a best practice. And so I think, yeah, there's a barrier to just finding quality care and finding providers who recognize that these very basic aspects of healthcare delivery, transgender healthcare or HIV care don't have to require tons and tons and tons more training. And when I look at it that way, I think that a lot of providers are able to kind of shirk the responsibility of like, oh, well, I'm not an ID doc. Oh, well, I don't know how to follow endocrine society guidelines. And so that feels like a barrier to me is that people are insured. They're more likely to be insured. You know, look at the ACA, look at Medicaid expansion where it's happened. People are in some communities do have health insurance. They might you know, be on a state or local Medicaid, but there's still barriers to us finding quality providers. And when you look at surgery care, the barriers are so vast, right? Like folks are on years long wait lists to try to get into care with reputable surgeons to access medically necessary care. And I, I know there's a lot of specialty care gaps around the country in rural areas, especially, but we're talking like urban areas, these surgeons have three, four year long wait lists. So that feels like a barrier to care as well, of just like requiring people to either take chances with doctors or surgeons who are like, sure, I'll try, um, but there's no vetting process. And then we've got doctors and surgeons who are like, I, I don't know how to do this for a trans person or for someone living with HIV, which feels really stigmatizing. Yeah, I add that I also think that it's incredibly irresponsible and unethical that insurers can push back against medical recommendations from providers. If you are someone who is seeking trans-affirming care, understanding that there's a certain amount of privilege that goes into that as well, but if you're someone whose doctor has affirmed your need, your want for gender-affirming care, and you pay a premium every month that an insurance provider can't then say, no, we're not going to cover it. We don't understand this. And that it it takes often compassionate and knowledgeable insurance adjusters and nurses to play with the codes to get you approved. I think that's unethical that they should be able to wield that power, particularly over people who are paying them. Totally. And also to the folks who are in those fields, that's just another number, not an actual person that's sitting in front of them. Yeah. I know from working in the clinic how frustrating it was to get prior offs and things like that. And I can't imagine it's got to be 10 times harder than, you know, getting a prior off for an HIV med. It requires so much advocacy and people who've been there before or sometimes write like this one nurse or like someone with institutional knowledge, you just like hate that they've, please don't leave. I've worked at my health center for 10 years and I've been doing these referrals for eight. And I know that somebody could do my job, but I do think about that of like, well, how far have we gotten because we've staffed for it and we work with hospitals or institutions where we've tried to hold on to point people to make sure people know what the authorization process, you know, we're all kind of like greasing the wheels, so to speak, to try to get it to go smoother in our nation's capital. So what's it like in the South or in rural communities? I can I can only imagine. Thank you, Britt, for that. There are also a lot of folks, and I don't think folks 
who've not had to deal with gender markers, this ever crosses their mind. But for trans folks, again, understanding there's privilege involved with this, who do have our gender markers change, that creates a really weird conflict with insurance providers, uh, providers of insurance services as well, and sometimes with medical communities, in part because there are certain procedures that are typically associated with the M and the S that is on a person's ID. And they're approved up until that marker changes. And suddenly um, there's a need for those same services. But the insurance provider, because we're just a number, kicks them back and says, well, why would a woman need this screening? Or why would a man need this screening? Just do it. Just to prove it. You know, why is that an issue? Yeah, that is certainly a challenge and one that I that I appreciate bringing. This is a clearly not things as a cisgendered white dude that I deal with. And as I've known you for the last year, Tori, every time you open your mouth, I learn something. So we've talked about some of the challenges, right? Let's talk about like the good side. So what are some of the best practices or innovations that stand out to you when you're thinking about delivering gender affirming HIV care? Whew, how much time do we have? All the time um, you want. I, I mean, I don't want to, I'm like, I don't want to complicate it, right? I do think um, some of it's already been brought up that, you know, Tori talked about like equipping communities with the resources they need. We talked about informed consent, right? Trusting people to know what they need for their bodies, doing what you can to kind of reduce barriers in the systems of like insurance or gender markers, Um something that we said earlier of like patient-centered care, true patient-centered care. It shouldn't be that innovative, right? Like, why is that surprising? But hey, it's it works. And that's sort of what pursuit of gender-affirming medical care or any medical care should be. It's like, well, what does this person in front of me need? They're unique. They may have different goals. I think those are some of the pieces. I know in certain clinics, there's talk of like, you have a specific prep clinic. Let's make it as easy as possible for people to get prep. Um, sometimes in those clinics, it's like, well, can we tack on hormone therapy too? Can we make it like a easy kind of one-stop shop for your prep and your hormones? Absolutely. Like, why wouldn't you try to reduce barriers? Why wouldn't you provide transportation or not require 16 lab draws a year to get a prescription that's staying the same? I think some of that stuff I've observed evolve with HIV care as well of like, People used to be asked to get their labs drawn every three months, and now there's not that much that you're going to expect to change if someone's taking their medication. So why can't you just space things out and kind of provide general care as if it's primary care? It doesn't need such close follow-up always, because that feels like gatekeeping. It is gatekeeping. (laughs) And thank you for that, Britt. And here's something else that I feel has changed. And I've briefly mentioned this. I think that for people who are living with HIV, there's a certain hope that perhaps didn't exist before. In part because of you equals you, because of the work of the Prevention Access Campaign and a lot of other folks who've really made sure to get the messaging out that science is proven an undetectable viral load means uh, HIV cannot be transmitted. I think what that does for people who are living with HIV who get the message and are able to receive the information is it provides hope reassurance, and some level of support that by taking your medicine, regardless as to other things that are going on in your life, when you take that medicine as prescribed and get to that undetectable viral load and maintain it, science says people have experienced and proven that you're going to be generally healthy. 
your sex life is going to improve in part because there's one less thing to worry about. And that's the ability to transmit HIV to sexual partners. And you know you're doing what really is one of the best possible things that you can do for yourself. And so I think it has been monumental, a simple little statement in that it affirms that people who are living with HIV who are taking their medicine are doing well. And one last thing, I know, you know, I can talk a little bit, but I am also extremely proud and disappointed at the same time, but this is a moment of pride, that there are more HIV care programs that incorporate housing. Um, A lot of times in my speeches, I talk about how Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera created the Star House in 1970 to house transvestites. That was the term they used at the time. And that in the 53 years, I was born in 73, so that's easy math. I mean, born in 70. Um, but in the 53 years since then, HIV care systems have said, well, we don't know how to house trans people, but if two drag queens could do it in 1970, we can do it in 2023. We now have the resources to do it and are seeing housing as a part of HIV care and moving into a new era where housing is now part of HIV prevention as well. You like cracked open another everything um, because of this, right? Like combining tangible resources. If we're talking about folks that are living at intersections of marginalized identities who maybe could benefit from access to tangible resources like housing, I've seen a couple of programs coming out that are talking about that. There's a grant that just dropped, I think, by the NIH called Compass that's supposed to be like a 10-year initiative to like really make institutional and community-wide change around these barriers to care. And something else that came to mind was just the idea of acknowledging pleasure, right? It's like we have bodies. Our bodies can experience pleasure. Why has pleasure not been a part of medicine across the lifespan? But I think a little bit of like an innovative best practice is slowly but surely doing away with the measures of like health marker or health indication that we've so often been governed by. And I know there's lots of reasons for that for funding and HRSA and CMS requirements. But what would it look like to have tools in place that monitored someone's quality of life and that like provided healthcare in pursuit of quality of life or pleasure or the things that are important to us in our communities. So Tori, you just reminded me of those like best practices that I haven't heard about a lot of, but I'm slowly hearing conversations coming around that there's awareness that gender affirming HIV care or just a best practice in medicine is to address more than just these biomedical markers of, you know, what's your A1C? What's your blood pressure? And sure, those matter. But if a patient's like, I'm living a happy life, how do I continue to feel happiness and joy as a trans person? Like, do that. If I may respectfully add in 20 seconds or less, I think uh, Compass is a Gilead initiative that's being promoted by NIH. I think uh, that's the 10-year, $100 million commitment or whatever the dollar amount is. And then I think also you brought in pleasure. And what you just said, really, again, it was it was brilliant. Pleasure had not been considered when we talk about health for many, many years, except that for cisgender men and Viagra and Cialis. Yeah. With the exception of that, you know, there has been no medicine or no intervention to increase people with vaginas or people who have front holes, um, sexual pleasure. 
And so we're yeah. now at a point in healthcare where we have to think about sexual pleasure as part of healthcare because people are having sex. Imagine that. <laughs> so why shouldn't it be pleasurable sex? I think if people can equate pleasure and health or pleasurable sex and healthy sex and really kind of connect it to, I think what happens is people are more apt to take care of themselves sexually and people in sexual relationships are able to take better care of each other. I love that. So we've kind of talked about different aspects of clinical care, but I wanted to close this out with a question about my favorite portion of clinical care, which is the sports staff. You know, Tori and I probably know this very well. When you go into a place where it is, it says AIDS on the front of the building, and then you go in and the front desk girl's cranky, and then the MEA's mad, and then you meet a peer educator who doesn't want to be there, that's such a turnoff. Like, I don't want to go back. So what impact do the clinical support staff, such as peer educators or front desk folks, have in creating an affirming environment? So in church, we say ushers are not allowed to have a bad Sunday. And it's true because they're the folks who welcome folks into church. And they're also the folks who take, they're often the first and the last people that people come in contact. And and they can sway the time that people have in the church experience. And it's really the same thing with support staff at, at providers, certainly. I don't want to minimize the role of doctors and MAs and PAs and all of that stuff. But when you think about front desk people, even when you think about the person that's cleaning the floor or someone that's sitting and managing a table just answering questions or caseworkers or social workers, all of those support people, they're not allowed to have a bad day when they're interacting with clients either. You know, um, it is important, I think I will say, prioritizing their mental health is something that we haven't properly done as a system, uh, making sure that they have the tools that they need so that they have fewer bad days, but then also making sure that they understand how integral they are to ensure to a person's health care plan and making sure that they understand every single interaction could be a life-altering interaction for every client who walks in the door every time. That's a big responsibility, but it's also a responsibility that I think people take on when they work in in front-facing positions as well. Yeah. I love that because it values everyone's part, um, which I hope exists. Like, I, I think that health centers should recognize that, you know, frontline workers don't get paid the salary of medical providers last time I checked. And yet that's who's answering the phone. That's who's greeting folks there's such an opportunity for our clients, ourselves, our communities to see people who look like us or share our identities. I said, as a white person, it doesn't feel very critical to me. I see white people in medicine all the time, but I think it's important to have staff in every range of roles, medical providers and front desk who mirror and share identities or experiences with the clients, because then you're also not just putting that labor on your peer educators to be like, oh, well, I have a trans person. Shouldn't they talk to you because you're trans? It's like, well, well, yeah, they might learn a thing or two or connect with me in this way. And not every trans person 
needs to go through like navigation or something for starting hormones. So if every staff person felt knowledgeable and like had an appropriate amount of training to offer resources and then like peer educators could also when it was wanted, I think that that makes a difference. I I guess I think every role plays a part in creating an affirming environment, but especially where it's like baked into the foundation of care delivery so that we're using non-gendered language, right? That like everyone's asking pronouns if that's a space where you're able to do that and it's necessary or like appropriate to in that capacity. But I don't think it should just be like the frontline workers who carry such a burden of kind of like setting the tone for for the whole health center, which I've seen happen some places where like all the feedback comes through and it's about frontline staff because they're the ones that get put on the spot a lot of the time. I'll briefly say that uh, we're now at a point, if, if you were a person who was diagnosed with HIV at the beginning of the epidemic, that you're retirement age now. And so for the first time in in the history of the HIV epidemic, we now have folks who are transitioning away from primary care doctors to gerontologists, you know, as their primary care doctor now. Many of us never thought that we would see that who work in this field, but now that's where we are. And so there has to be, though HIV is no longer the topic du jour, there has to be continuing education around HIV because there are going to be more providers who will service clients who are living with HIV than fewer as the world continues to age and as the epidemic itself continues to age. And so it's going to be important to have educational campaigns and for folks who provide services to have these type of opportunities to learn more about the people that they're serving, but also really to integrate HIV into every single medical practice as well. Absolutely. I feel a little more removed from HIV care lately. For the last four years, I've like exclusively worked with trans folks. So some of whom are HIV positive, some are negative, some don't know their status, but I used to be more exclusively on the HIV side. And I just love that reminder. It also feels like a call in to me, Tori, of like, oh yeah, I I also want to stay current on what's happening around HIV of all statuses, status neutral HIV approach, um, because that's what I want in healthcare delivery also. And I want more providers to feel like managing HIV care is normal, including prevention or care on the on the positive side of things. And that's, I think I said it, that's what I want for gender affirming care though, too. Like I want more people who are able to start on hormones if that's what they need to meet their goals or even just like be able to share their pronouns or gender identity with their primary care provider and be like, and I have no no goals for any medical intervention, but I need you to use these names and pronouns. And for that to be common and like not bad an eye, that just like people are affirmed where they're at and they don't feel like they have to seek specialty care or travel or right, like spend resources to access this like really simple thing. I think that's a wonderful way to end. I want to thank my guests, Tori and Britt, for joining me today for this important and timely conversation. You know, as we talk about the progress being made in the HIV field, it feels like we have a significant amount of way to go before we reach a place where we have gender-affirming HIV care. And that that's a role we all have to play, and it's going to take both inside of a clinic space, but also in our government offices. There has to be political will to change the world. So I appreciate you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you.
HIV Connect is made possible through educational grants from Gilead Sciences and Merkin Company, which has no influence over the podcast series topics, content, or speaker selection. To learn more about today's topics and other subjects, visit AIDSinfoNet at www.iapac.org backslash support backslash AIDS-infonet or click the link in the show notes. As IAPAC's Senior Advisor on Community Engagement, I want to hear from you. You can email me at kpugh at iapac.org. You can also find out more about today's guests in our show notes. Until next time, please be kind and take care of yourself and each other.